This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. It's Thursday, March 18th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I didn't make it a minute into Donald Trump's press conference today. He began with a light insult of the media, then proceeded to treat COVID-19 as if it were Lil Marco or Lion Ted. I want to thank you all for being here. And I have to say, I think with social distancing that the media has been much nicer. I don't know what it is. All these empty, these in-between chairs. You probably shouldn't have anybody sitting behind you either. You know, you should probably go back. But I love it. It's so much nicer. But I shouldn't say that because you'll get me now. Uh, thank you all for being here. And we continue our relentless effort to defeat the Chinese virus. I'm out. Doctors have tried chloroquine and favipiravir. So why not xenophobia in treating coronavirus? With xenophobia... Patients start ignoring their symptoms in four to six weeks. Now, members of the media have been asking pointed questions about the appropriateness of using the phrase China virus. Answer, it's actually not appropriate. It just does not help, but it is clear what Trump is doing. I happen, though, not to know if it is the most important issue for us to dwell on. Just as medical practitioners have to be proactive and do a type of triage, so do journalists. And when the topics are a mask shortage and testing and suspending the primaries and mandatory orders to shut down gatherings and procuring ventilators. I don't know if the word choice used to describe the virus was the most vital issue, but the president, he loved the issue. He couldn't let it alone. He saw that the media were saying, you should really rise above the name calling and thought, wait, rise above? Oh, that's my cue. That tells me to wallow. Now's the time to wallow. Finally, I have a purpose. You know, I have a certain talent for this. Despite all that, monitor these press conferences I must, and not just Trump's, but actual leaders with actual solutions. For instance, when Trump was asked about using his office to spur production of badly needed medical supplies to treat sick Americans, he acted as if that were a little below his pay grade. First of all, governors are supposed to be doing a lot of this work, and they are doing a lot of this work. The federal government's not supposed to be out there buying vast amounts of items and then shipping. You know, we're not a shipping clerk. Uh, The governors are supposed to be, as with testing, the governors are supposed to be doing it. Uh, We'll help out, and we'll help out wherever we can, and we can buy in volume, and in some cases, great volume. Governors, you know, they may be sick Americans, but they're also sick Washingtonians or Iowans or Indianans. So why don't you ask the governors? And so we will. That is the topic of my spiel. What other leaders are doing? And mostly what they're doing badly. 
But first, I'm about to engage in an act of shaming public officials. In fact, I just did a little bit. And that actually might work. If enough people do it, public figures are sensitive to public censure. But what about a more personal approach for the recalcitrant ignoramus in your own life? Step one, don't call them that. Step two, practice persuasion like the con men do. And you know who knows about con men and the subtle art of changing someone's mind? Maria Konnikova. I didn't think she did, but then she talked me into it. I realized, yeah, it is in my own best interest to have Maria Konnikova on. And it is in your own best interest to hear her. So here is Maria to advise you on the best way to engage with people who are defiantly denigrating what could be our only hope. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So on this show, from time to time, we play a very popular segment, world-renowned. It's called Is That Bullshit? And our guest is Maria Konnikova, who is a uh, science journalist. I would say a scientist. She has a uh, PhD in uh, the psychological arts. She is also the author of The Biggest Bluff, which is her forthcoming book about poker, and that takes into account items like psychology and persuasion. So we're not exactly playing is that bullshit today. We're talking about the best uses of persuasion to get our fellow Americans and citizens to do what is right for their sake and ours. Hello, Maria. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing? As, as best as hanging in there all by myself, as best as can be imagined. So uh, right before we fired up the old recorder, <laughs> you were saying, aren't you pissed off at these spring breakers or, and you didn't mention it, the Kid Rock Honky Tonk concert goers? I, I hope that's been canceled. But yeah, they do piss me off. What the hell's wrong with them? I know, I know. And unfortunately, saying what the hell's wrong with you is probably not the best way to go if we're hoping to change their behavior. I wish that we could just yell at them and they'd say, oops, I made, I made a mistake, my bad. Um, I'll now go self-isolate. Um, but it doesn't work that way. It's actually really, really hard to get people to change their minds. Right. So it seems like there's a couple parts of this. One is, well, first of all, let's define what best behavior is. And this is what uh, the vast majority of the experts are saying, which is to isolate as much as possible and don't congregate and don't dismiss experts who say that, you know, being in large gatherings or even kind of medium-sized gatherings does pose a threat of community spread. So if that's what we want everyone to adhere to, there are good ways and bad ways of trying to nudge them in the right direction. And um, yelling at them that they're idiots, that's, that's not a good way you're saying? Um, no, no, that's not a good way. We've got some good research on that. People do not like to be told that they're idiots. Uh-huh. So what do they like to be told or what will they listen to and how can you, is it a process of first opening their minds and then putting in the right info? So, so I wish I had a really, really easy answer for you. Um, and I wish that we had, you know, the psychology of persuasion tells you that this is what you do. 
Unfortunately, it's much more complicated and it's much more nuanced and there's no clear-cut answer. Otherwise, you know, I think there'd be just communication best practices and this is what you do and it would always work. And we know from other beliefs that people have tried to change, like the anti-vax movement, that it's very difficult to get people to change their minds on certain issues. So a lot of actually, a lot of this comes from the work that I did for my last book, The Confidence Game, about con artists. Um, how do con artists persuade people? How do con artists get you to do what they want you to do? And the first step is to actually listen to them and to ask, okay, what, what are you thinking? Why do you think this is okay? Um, kind of what is your rationale? You know, what is your, what is your thinking behind this? Because I think it's incredibly important to understand where they're coming from, because we're going to target our messaging differently depending on what they answer. Oh, okay. So what, I mean, I'm trying to think, what are some explanations? Like, I just don't trust you, or I th- I question your motives, or you're saying this for a reason, you're saying this for reason X, but your real motivation is reason Y. Right. So I think if we're talking about COVID specifically, I think some people would say or would have said before. So I think it's it's very good that um, Trump and that Fox News have changed their tune a little bit before they would have said it's a hoax. I don't believe it. It's real. It's not real. They'd say, oh, it's not that bad. It's just the flu. Right. Or while I'm young, I'll be fine. It doesn't really matter. Or, oh, herd immunity. We're all going to get sick anyway. You know, might as well just go and party it up and have fun. All of these things are wrong, by the way, but they might say them in terms of, you know, why they think that it's totally fine. And so we need to target that so that we can figure out how do I make you realize that what you're thinking isn't right? But how do I do that without making you feel like an idiot, without making you feel like I'm talking down to you, without making you feel like I'm actually somehow targeting you or making you vulnerable, without attacking your sense of self and your identity? Because I think that that's actually one of the key things to getting people to change their mind. Like, you know, I've given this a lot of thought, and I think there are different ways that we can approach these conversations depending on who we're talking to, and kind of what they're thinking. And by the way, one of the things that doesn't usually work is just presenting a lot of information that tells them that they're wrong. The ones that are still saying, I don't need to socially distance, I don't need to do all of that, it ain't going to happen if you just keep giving them more facts and more information. I think it needs to come from a more human direction. So there's probably a difference between how to do this online with a stranger, how to do this maybe online with someone you know, how to do this in real life. But one technique that I find, and not just I find, I think hostage negotiators do this, and I think con men do, and I think good salesmen do, is you ask a question that garners a a positive response, an affirmative response. Even if, and I've heard interviews with hostage negotiators saying, even if it's, you know, something about how they like their burger cooked, because once you get a yes, there's at least a little, at least a little semblance of common ground. And it's an easier place to go to than from getting a no. Absolutely. And I think that here, one of the ways that I think you could start almost anywhere, um, whether it's online or in person with a stranger with someone you know, is do you think of yourself, you know, as a good person? Do you think of yourself? Do you want to help others? Because I don't think many people would say, no, actually, I'm an asshole. I'm a selfish jerk. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not a good person. No, I don't want to help anyone else, right? I mean, I'm assuming maybe there are people who'd be like, "Uh, nope, I'm just an asshole. 
but most people will say, yeah, you know, I think of myself as a, as a good human being. I actually think that one of the reasons that we're having problems in the U.S. especially convincing people to socially distance is we have this just kind of rugged individualism, this like notion of, oh, you know, John Wayne wouldn't wear a face mask. He'd go and just punch the crap out of that virus. And that's really, I think that really hurts us because if you look at countries that have had it under control, countries like, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, they are actually, you know, everyone knows that it's their social responsibility to be vigilant and that you're going to be looked at almost like a murderer if you go out in public without a mask, without, you know, without gloves, without socially distancing. If you do those things, people will look at you like you're violating a social norm. Here, it's the opposite. If you go out looking like that, even today, people will think that you're being paranoid, that you're just being you know, germaphobic or whatnot. I think that's slowly changing, but I think that that's what we're up against. Well, I think there's some of that going on, but it's also a little more complicated because with so many of our past national traumas, the healing process has actually included large group gatherings and going out to, after 9-11, maybe you could get a ticket to the producers, said Rudy Giuliani. And then the Mets came back and Liza Minnelli saying, New York, New York. And it was everyone together and the togetherness has the healing powers, but in this case, the togetherness is giving spread to the contagion. So it's a little harder than with some of these other experiences. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think it's both of those things. So I think that there are a few arguments that can be persuasive once you get it on this kind of more positive footing and also try to figure out why they don't think it matters. So for people who say, you know, I don't care because I'm not personally affected, if they really are quite selfish and you've already tried that, I think the first thing to do is, well, do you realize that you can actually infect other people even if you have no symptoms whatsoever so you can infect your grandparents? But to a lot of people, they'll say, ah, I don't care. Like, you know, I don't have any grandparents or, you know, I don't see my grandparents anyway. Like, I I don't care. And then you can actually say, well, it actually can affect you too because now we actually have data that young people can suffer, young people can die and can have permanent damage. So for some people, it might actually be effective to scare them a little and to say, actually, no, you could die or your lung capacity could be diminished for the rest of your life. These are things that do affect all age groups. And then you have the people who are your grandparents or, you know, your parents and who are saying, ah, you're overreacting, you millennials these days, right? That's actually one of the target populations. It's not just the people who are going on spring break. They're also the people who say, you're overreacting, you know, I've been through much worse. I think for them, the argument has to be a little bit different. And you have to say, well, you know, this is a different threat and you could be hurting yourself and you could be hurting others. Right. And I think maybe the best way to do that is not to say, what about your grandkids is, oh, you know, I have actually tried to interact with a couple of people and said, you know, I was where you were or just a little thing like, Oh, yeah. Obviously, if you've ever watched hurricane coverage, the media tends towards hype. Just a little acknowledgement like, yeah, I hear your brother or I hear your sister. That said, here is a thing that kind of convinced me or here was something I hadn't thought of before, 
but it's why it's a little different. I don't know. That, that is, I don't know how effective it's been, but at least the people don't seem to uh, shut down the conversation after that. Well, I think that that's absolutely key. And I think you've hit on something really important, which kind of dovetails with what we were talking about earlier about not threatening, about not blaming, not judging and being positive. And also acknowledge that, you know, they're being forced to give up something they don't want to give up. So if it's the spring break kids or, you know, kid rock concert goers say, you know, I understand that this is a big, big deal. And you can even, you know, I I don't think missing a kid rock concert is a big deal, but I can lie a little bit. Those types of exaggerations and white lies might be effective in these situations. So, you know, I know I'd be devastated too. It's terrible. But look at what's Look at what you're doing. You know, look at the service that you're providing. I mean, you're that rugged individual hero. You have a chance to actually be a hero. This is about you. This is about you being awesome. And people are going to see you and be like, wow, look at that awesome person. Do you have any thoughts on if it is a better strategy for the individual who sees someone advocating something dangerous or not taking this seriously? Is it a better strategy to lash out and maybe get it off your chest or to put in time if you think that person is reachable and to uh, maybe try to employ some of these strategies we've talked about, even if they're not going to work, even if they're a waste of time. What actually, sure, what you'd like is for everyone to act reasonably, but just in terms of your own psyche, is do you have any thoughts or have you done any research as to what's better for the lasher, not the lashee? Um, for the last year, I think it's better to put in the time. You actually, there are studies that look at how you feel after you say something that you potentially regret later, after you lash out at something. And granted, all of these studies, at least the ones that I'm more familiar with, are done on in-person interactions. But I think that a lot of it would carry over, that people actually, when they vent and when they just immediately react and lash out, they tend to feel much worse afterwards. So it doesn't actually help. There might, there might be this kind of momentary catharsis, but afterwards, especially if there are any sorts of negative repercussions, you feel guilty, you feel regretful, and you kind of feel like a piece of shit, depending on how bad you were. And there are also studies that show that people who try to engage constructively end up being much more satisfied. And people do change their mind actually a lot more than one might think if they feel like you're listening to them. And most of us don't listen well. Most of us don't actually do that. We don't engage. So that's actually a skill that I've picked up from con artists of all people. They're very good listeners because that's what their business depends on. That's how you build trust. That's how you build rapport, even with people who are very different, is by trying to find ways that you're similar. That's actually kind of what you were talking about before when you said, you know, I've been there, I've done something similar, and listening and actually mirroring back people's concerns, mirroring back what they're saying. And at the end of the day, people who do engage in that sort of constructive dialogue, I mean, obviously, if it ends up being effective, then you feel amazing. But even if it doesn't, um, you tend to feel like a better human being um, at the end of the day. And that's not just me saying that there's actually work on this. Like it's a little different than, you know, trying to change someone to, to vote for the right person, because, you know, votes are votes are tallied in some in the national election you got to live in the right state and there's usually a margin of thousands and thousands of votes but in this case you know getting three family members who were kind of cavalier to stay inside really can help things absolutely 
And I will say also here we have an opportunity that we often don't have when we're talking about, oh, who are you voting for? Because this issue, it was becoming politicized, obviously, at the beginning. And we could see a lot of political division on Democrats versus Republicans and how many of them believed that this was a threat. I think that those divisions, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, are getting slightly less severe now. But I think it's very important to strike while the iron's hot before it becomes a deeply political issue. Because once it becomes political, it becomes much more of a threat to the self to change it. So right now, I think we're still in a malleable time where you can change people's minds, because it can be something that bridges political divide. Um, Unlike something like you know, climate change, where it's become so deeply political that it's really almost impossible to talk to people about it, no matter how you engage with them. Yes. And uh, even though we say one person can make a difference in climate change, it's a little abstract if that person isn't a 13-year-old Scandinavian. But in this case, it really can. (laughs) In this case, it absolutely can. Um, And that's not bullshit. Oh, man, (laughs) you stuck the landing. (laughs) Maria Konnikova does come on our program so often to do that segment, but today it's just to talk about her background and study of persuasion. I mean, she did write Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and she did write a book called The Confidence Game, which is really about what we're talking about, and her new book coming out in June is The Biggest Bluff. Thanks so much, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Gabbard clobbered. Tulsi calls thee from three to now two because Tulsi Gabbard is out. Editor's note, Tulsi Gabbard was technically still in. Hmm. And now the moderately pro-Bashar al-Assad voter doesn't know where to turn. Tulsi had some advice. So today I'm suspending my presidential campaign and offering my full support to Vice President Joe Biden in his quest to bring our country together. She cited Biden's personal qualities as a factor in the endorsement. I'm confident that he will lead our country guided by the spirit of aloha, respect and compassion. Aloha, by the way, means hello, goodbye, love, peace, compassion, and also, I found this out today, malarkey. If we had forgotten why it is important to have leadership that is both compassionate and competent, We were given several reminders over the course of today in the last couple days. There is, of course, this gentleman, previously mentioned, who sits in the highest office in the land. We were very prepared. Uh, The only thing we weren't prepared for was the, uh, the media. The media has not treated it fairly. Clearly. So I believe these last few days have been an interesting lesson in federalism, because the president's unwilling or incapable of meeting the needs of the states, so the governors have been left to do it on their own. And some have shined while others have withered. In general, I know of no Democratic governor who is failing to take this extremely seriously. For instance, Colorado Governor Jared Polis answered one business owner who tweeted at him, you're destroying my business with your shutdowns, by answering, yes, if everyone dies, you will have no customers. The Kansas City Star, in an editorial titled Tale of Two Governors, noted that Kansas's Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, has, quote, taken the bold and absolutely necessary actions of school closures and limits on group gatherings, whereas Missouri governor, Republican Mike Parson, according to the Star, quote, continues to take a frighteningly leisurely approach 
arguing that school closures must be a local decision. On Wednesday, he again said it was up to each of us to keep ourselves safe. Other Republican governors have, while attempting to appear sane and calm and prudent, have chosen the imprudent action of not using their actual powers to mandate closures. In Indiana, Republican Governor Eric Holcomb sought to convey to the public that he was on top of things, he was keeping everyone safe. But when asked why some restaurants in the state were still pretty crowded, he said this. I'm, I'm discouraged if businesses are not practicing social distancing. I've talked to a, a long list of businesses who have completely adapted their uh, business model to see, to see it uh, through. I have personally, uh, over the last two nights, um, gotten taken out food to restaurants that used to offer in-dining, and, and now they've gone to um, order online, pay online, pick up, they bring it outside. Um, and so uh, I'm going to continue to you know, recommend and encourage Hoosiers to, to try to keep our main streets um, functioning. Under- Discouraged? He'll continue to recommend and encourage Hoosiers? I mean, that's fine. It's fine for someone to make recommendations to Hoosiers if that someone is Woody from Cheers or Bobby Knight or Leslie Nope. Basically, every Hoosier other than the governor. You are the guy who doesn't need to recommend that things happen. You are the guy who can mandate. But among a certain strain of small government governor, the governor who governs least, governs best type conservative, there is this trend of not doing enough. Perhaps you saw footage of young scholars on spring break who are tasking their white blood cells with fighting for the right to party. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. You know, Yo, bro, what you squatting these days? Killer. No, seriously, killer. Look, I get the YOLO lifestyle, but I'm more concerned with the IOLO, I only live once. To say nothing of the TOLO, the elderly only live once, and the AOLO, asthmatics only live once. And also the aioli, which is a delicious kind of sauce for a calamari. But did Florida mandate that spring breakers get off the beach? Governor Ron DeSantis was asked about mass gatherings a couple of days ago at a time when other governors, Republicans and Democrats, were mandating that mass gatherings be banned. Here's that Q&A. County Sheriff uh, Rick Wells, is, uh, I've been told, is interpreting your order on bars and clubs to allow the clubs and bars to stay open uh, but not serve alcohol after 5 p.m. Was that your intention, and did you discuss that with the, or did that come up with the sheriffs on the call today? Yeah, so what we're trying to do with this is we want to avoid large crowds throughout the state right now. Um, I don't want to shut every aspect of life down. I think that that wouldn't be effective. Um, but I think in those situations, and, and if I could have figured out a more tailored way to do it, I would have done it. But at the end of the day, you know, you have people crowding into these places, um, and that is creating the type of activity that we are being warned against. What do you mean a tailored response? You're the sheriff in town. You're not the tailor. You don't need to hem the garments to follow the fashion of the day. You need to shut it down. And notice his use at the end of the day. Where did we hear that one before? The question was, Will you shut down the restaurants before five? And his answer was, nah, at the end of the day, you can't do that. All right, then do it at the beginning of the day. Just do it all day. Just do it. Soon, that idiot spring breaker and fellow members of Phi Beta Kappa were interviewed on CBS News. And like a certain pandemic, the clip went viral. And DeSantis was today, just today, actually shamed into doing something more forceful. 
or at least giving the impression that that is what he was doing. So the message, I think, for spring breakers is that the party's over in Florida. Um, You're not going to be able to congregate on any beach in the state. Many of the hot spots that people like to go to, whether it's Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Clearwater Beach, um, are closed entirely for the time being. The bars are closed, so you're not going to have a place to congregate there. So we would just tell those folks, you know, maybe come back next year when things are better. Uh, But that is not what we're looking for here in the state of Florida. Every single beach uh, will have to abide by the CDC guidelines. No more than 10 people. You have to be socially distant. Not every beach is going to remain open, but but some will. Uh, Abide by CDC guidelines of no more than 10 people. Okay, but the beaches will remain open. So nine people at a time on the beach. Clearwater, which was the site of the most widely viewed pictures of students congregating, will be open until Monday. Because, as the governor told Fox, right. Well, so the, you know they got to make the decisions as how they see it. But regardless of those local decisions, um, you're not going to be able to congregate like those images that you saw. That just okay. So no more damaging images. That is a priority. But of course, the state couldn't tell the municipality to shut it down, except for the fact that it could. It's just that some Republican governors, because of their ideology, don't want to. And it's an odd thing. Because if you don't focus on the exact actions, everyone seems kind of reasonable and caring. Look, we've all heard the CDC guidelines. Every governor is citing the CDC guidelines. But their guidelines, they're at least encouraging restaurants and guiding towns and cities towards safety. They're not saying be less safe. Well, maybe Jim Justice of West Virginia was. Go to the grocery store. If you want to go to Bob Evans and eat, go to Bob Evans and eat. But he even today said he was wrong. I'm not here to shame everyone who eventually makes the right decision. So good on you, Governor Justice. It's just amazing what goes into these bad decisions. It is ideology. It is the constituency the governor has to serve. But I also think it's that the governors are not getting the kind of immediate blowback that would normally come when a politician really missteps, when he or she endorses a mistaken policy. Because in these press conferences, they are exhibiting some best practices of communication. They're not going out there and pointing fingers and being angry and trying to get attention by saying something outrageous. They emote, they explain, they answer questions. They have a panel of experts behind them. They nod. They honestly feel like they're doing their jobs and doing it well. I'm sure 50 out of 50 governors are saying, this is why I was elected. But 10 to 15 of them are doing the public a disservice. Normally, when a politician makes an outrageous pronouncement or one that maybe his opponents would regard as outrageous or one that even his constituents would if they learned about it, there's a motivation there. And it's usually not a misstep. It's usually because to become a politician, you have to define yourself against another candidate. So what you do is you purposefully take one side of a wedge issue. Often your party dictates where you're going to land on these wedge issues. And the wedge issues exist and parties generally organize themselves around them. Most governors happen to be good administrators who would normally do what a good administrator would do. But when we pay attention to governors, it's because they favor an issue that defines them as a better alternative to their rivals. Like they're more pro-life if a governor were, say, in a southern state, or they're more pro-business if the governor were running a state that was like in the south, or they're tougher on crime in a state maybe south of the Mason-Dixon line. Wait, I see a pattern here. But they stake out the position so as to create contrast, win elections, and earn popularity, which is political capital. 
And it's very easy for those who disagree with these readily defined stances to say, well, that's stupid. And they know they're going to get that flack. They know they're going to get that incoming. But that is not the dynamic that's going on here. In a situation like this, the right and wrong choice hasn't been defined for years and campaigned on for years and negative ads haven't been made about it for years. They're really not trying to score a point by keeping the beaches open. This is just who they are. They think there is a virtue in governing less, but there is not. And I hope they are learning that before it's too late. That's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi produces the gist. Her tactics of persuasion begin with finding a shared interest, like pinochle or drone racing. Daniel Schrader, gist producer when trying to change minds, always leads with a nice iced llama brownie. The gist. We're the federal government. We have an army with cargo planes and a navy. We're not really into shipping. Oompuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.